Christmas, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tailed Wowkey Specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello, and welcome to this very, very special bonus edition of the Teotihuacan specials. So while I was doing the Teotihuacan episodes, I realised it was all a little bit doom and gloom, and that maybe people would feel a little bit miserable about the way I was effectively just listing all of the various ways that we could be roasted and mashed into a pulp, or die horribly of foul diseases. Or else, in some of them, the entire planet is obliterated by supervolcanoes and debris from outer space. And yes, I agree, after a while, thinking about all this stuff might start to depress you just a little bit. It's only natural. And then there's that mathematical argument, isn't there? The one that involves a little bit of sleight of hand and goes like this. You should assume that you're nothing special. No offence, it's just a mathematical assumption. You should assume, in fact that you're a pretty average human life. You should assume in the fact that you're a pretty average human life. If there's a big long chain of human lives, then chances are you're somewhere near the middle. Right now, we can estimate that there are around seven and a half billion humans alive today. It's difficult to estimate how many people have ever lived because obviously people weren't keeping very good records at the start of humanity, and we don't know exactly when humans first emerged. But a decent calculation by the Population Reference Bureau suggests that maybe a hundred billion people have died before us. Now that's somewhat comforting, at least the dead outnumber the living, but then you realise that if there are only a hundred billion people left to go, which makes you and me dead average, then things are going to have to change. After all, even if the population stays at seven billion, which seems unlikely given the way things are going, even then we'd only have another fifteen or so human lifespans left, maybe a thousand years or so. Then we would have used up all of the people, if this argument is true, if we're in the dead middle of this big long string of human lives. A thousand years is not really all that long in the course of human history. The same Population Reference Bureau estimate uses 50,000 BC as the time when the first Homo sapiens were around. So if you think about it in terms of years, if this is true, if we're average humans, then it means we only have 2% of the time left for our species. A thousand years, and that's it. Now, although this is a lot more optimistic than half the episodes in my series, such as the ones where I said we could all be dead by the end of the century, or indeed that it's a miracle that we're not all dead already. There's another way of putting this argument. Imagine you have two jars before you. One of them contains ten lottery balls. The other one contains ten billion lottery balls. They're all numbered. One, two, three, four, and so on. Right the way up to 10 billion. Imagine if you pick a ball out from one of the jars without knowing which jar it is. You look at the ball and it says 7. Then you must think, wow, I almost certainly picked the ball from the jar with just 10 balls. Because if I'd picked from 10 billion, what are the chances of me just being the 7th ball? Those jars are like models of the human future, and the ball you picked is your life. In one model, Humans are going extinct fairly soon, so the number of humans that will ever have lived will be around 100 billion, 
and you might be the 70 billionth human ever to have lived. In the other, though, humans get past our difficulties and manage to spread through the galaxy. In this case, you might expect, there's no reason why there couldn't be a ridiculous number of humans. Imagine the populations of thousands of Earths evolving and changing and growing for millions of years. We know that this is at least theoretically possible, we can imagine it, and it makes sense that this is probably what will happen if we carry on without some existential crisis along the way. You can call it a manifest destiny for the cosmos if you like. Maybe in this scenario, there would be a trillion trillion humans who ever live, and in that case, only being the 70 billionth human is very unlikely. So you can see, if humans are bound to go extinct fairly soon, that's the equivalent of you picking out the number 7 from the jar with 10 balls. But if humans manage to live in the long term and thrive throughout the universe, then we must be very, very early in the chronology of our species. And that's quite unlikely. We're far more likely to be average. We're far more likely to be in the middle. And that means that observing our place in the cosmic narrative, you might expect human extinction to be more likely than you'd otherwise have assumed. This is the argument anyway, and it's kind of difficult to tell once you've wrapped your brain around it, whether it's genuinely convincing or just a little bit of sleight of hand. After all, if the second ever human had applied this same logic, they would have assumed that only three humans would ever live. That makes me perfectly average, one before me and one after me. And I guess they'd probably start mourning the species straight away. So this is called the doomsday argument, and it's a fascinating one. You can mathematically formalise it to spruce it up a little bit, but that's kind of basically the argument. But there are lots of counter-arguments. The one I like best is the assumption that, a priori, we are in the first 5% or so of humans to be born. If you assume that at some point the human population will be steady for a very long time, which seems a reasonable possibility to me at least, I mean, when we look at things in the world, more of them are stable than unstable, because instability by its nature leads you to move, and if you can move, if you keep moving, you'll eventually move to a stable situation. It doesn't seem that likely that the population of Earth, at least, won't eventually stabilise, and indeed people think it will around 9 or 10 billion in a few decades. But you see, if you assume that there is going to be this long now, this long period of stability, this long human civilization that's only limited by things like the sun blowing up or the heat death of the universe, then the tumultuous times that we're living in now are evidence that we're very early on human development. After all, if our species is going to survive and spread amongst the stars or anything like that, then it should be clear that we're really very early in the human development. After all, modern and effective medicine has only really existed for a few hundred years. In other words, we're still adjusting to the scientific, technological, and environmental, and also social developments that have made the eventual steady state of human population possible. We're early in the timeline. And if you buy this argument, then the doomsday logic just kind of reduces to whether you think humanity can survive in the long term, for hundreds of thousands of years. And then, since that era has clearly not started yet, the era where we can live for hundreds of thousands of years, you can argue that this doomsday logic doesn't apply. The point is that people predict the end of the world all the time. I guess we all want to be those special humans who get to witness the end of everything. 
especially if we believe that there's some chance we might get to say a final, glorious, I told you so, to all the naysayers and doubters, before the earth is engulfed in a fiery ball of death. As you might have noticed, though, every end of the world prediction so far, at least the ones for dates that have happened, has spectacularly failed to be correct. At least that is the ones for dates before now. Usually, I don't think it's very fair to laugh at people for being wrong, because being wrong is almost always the first step towards learning anything. But predicting the end of the world is a pretty bold prediction, and it leaves you with a massive amount of egg on your face when it all goes wrong. So let's explore some of the failed prediction stories, what they thought would happen, how it didn't happen, and what happened next. Maybe laughing at how badly wrong predictions have proved to be will make us all feel better, who knows? And maybe a thousand years in the future, some poor future historian will find my podcasts, and they can all have a good laugh at my expense. And so, the cosmic ballet of mockery will come wheeling back around to bite me in the butt. So while I was researching this article, my eye was naturally drawn to the fact that, as I write this, the end of the world is incredibly close. I wrote at the end of July, and according to no less reputable a source than the Sun newspaper, the end of the world is going to occur on August the 21st, 2017 which means, given my current release schedule, you'll never hear this episode at all. Rather sad, really. I might as well stop writing, right now. In fact, even as I record this, which is happening finally in September of 2017, there's a rumour that this weekend, the tenth planet is going to crash into the Earth? Never really heard much about that, but okay. So, anyway, back to August. What was going to cause the end of the world? Well, a solar eclipse, apparently. Namely, the solar eclipse that will affect much of the UK and North America on August the 21st, 2017. Quoting from the Sun newspaper, the aforementioned rag, quote, Conspiracy theorists have pointed to passages from the Book of Revelation to support their predictions, the Daily Star reported. They have highlighted passages describing a woman clothed in the sun with the moon at her feet. Scripture says the woman will be hunted by a satanic seven-headed dragon looking to eat her unborn child. Okay. They also highlighted predictions of 12th century Rabbi Judah ben Samuel, who reportedly said that the end of the world would come in 2017. But the doomsayers do hint at some uncertainty in their predictions, as they've also said that scripture warns that no one knows the hour of the apocalypse. End quote. So this prophecy is basically a perfect example of a vast chunk of end of the world prophecies. They take the vaguest of justifications from saying that they're taking things from a suitably ambiguous text, such as the Book of Revelations or Nostradamus. A group of people then read way too much into it and start predicting the apocalypse. And usually they have some kind of ulterior motive. They realise that their justification is incredibly flimsy. For example, in this case, that passage from the Book of Revelations that you can just about read as referring to a solar eclipse, although obviously not any particular eclipse, that's the kind of justification that you have. But I mean, that's not going to convince too many people. And after all, plenty of apocalypses have been predicted based on the words in the book of Revelations. So you need to throw in all kinds of different pieces of, quote, evidence in a, but wait, there's more, conspiratorial kind of way. So in this case, they mentioned the prophecies of Rabbi Judah ben Samuel. He was a rabbi who lived 800 years ago. There's something quite odd about all of this to me anyway. I mean, if someone shows up today and says they have special information about when the world's going to end, They're usually dismissed as a complete crackpot, even if what they say is based on things that might be scientifically plausible. 
And after all, if someone is going to get special knowledge somehow that the end of the world is nigh, wouldn't it make sense for them to get that knowledge pretty soon before the apocalypse? It just seems bizarre that people would somehow find a prophecy more credible just because it happened a long time ago. I mean, if you predict that the world will end in 2800 tomorrow, and then in 800 years time people get all excited, I guess you'd be quite surprised, wouldn't you? In this case though, they can point to a long track record, because apparently Rabbi Judah ben Samuel also predicted that Jerusalem would be conquered by the Ottoman Turks, held for 600 years, then in no man's land for 50 years, then recaptured by Israel for 50 years, which broadly fits with modern history. And then somehow the end of the world happens after that, or something? Except, of course, that when you actually look into it, the Rabbi Judah ben Samuel said no such thing. It's just one in a great, great line of people who've been manipulated to try and make prophecies look more realistic by sprinkling in some true information at a later date. There's actually no source earlier than 2008 for this particular translation of the Rabbi's works, the one that includes all of these prophecies about Israel and then the end of the world. Chances are he never said it. So not only is the justification for the apocalypse not particularly convincing anyway, but it also turns out to be entirely fictional. So there you go, congratulations to the Sun and the Daily Star, who, in some valuable column inches read by thousands of people, instead of trying to educate the public in some way, have just given rise to this wild conspiracy theory in the hope of selling a few more papers. And they'll continue to do it probably until the end of time, until science and mysticism become so confused in the public imagination that there's no wonder people don't believe in things like climate change. One of the things I enjoyed most about looking into this particular rumour was that there were a load of articles debunking it. A lot of these articles seem pretty factual, rational, and well-researched, until right at the very end. Then they revealed that the obvious reason that this prophecy is clearly false is that, of course, only the person who wrote the article knows the true date of the end of the world. It's amazing how many conspiracy theory websites do this. They debunk other conspiracy theories to make their own seem more plausible. I guess maybe they should assume that anyone looking this stuff up is already end of the world curious, and so maybe they might be susceptible to a slightly different flavoured brand of nonsense. I guess I can understand why a lot of people would want to believe that this stuff is true, because in researching the end of the world as we know it, I felt it would be neat to be part of that special generation that believes the end of the world is nigh. And of course, I can't really skirt around this any longer, there are a lot of people out there whose religions say that at some point there's going to be an apocalypse, or a judgement day, or a rapture, or a second coming. A millennial event. Something that's going to be the end of the world as we know it, regardless of whether you think it's going to be good or bad for you. And a lot of them believe that this event is going to show up and, uh, you know, result in paradise for the faithful. So, according to an oft-quoted stat, 40% of Americans believe that Jesus is returning within their lifetimes. If that is something you believe, then I can see why you'd want to start to look for any possible sign that it's going to occur. But this has been the case since the very start of Christianity, where the original beliefs amongst early Christians were that Jesus' return would be imminent. As time passed, it became less and less clear that it was, in fact, imminent. I don't want to go too far to offend anyone who believes this, but what I will say is if you do believe in a second coming at some point, you have to agree that a lot of people who don't really know when this is going to happen are rather making fools of themselves by constantly predicting it, when presumably the point is that it comes pretty much unannounced. 
It was maybe possibly presumably predicted in the Bible, but the idea that a few people would be able to figure out the date while everyone else remains clueless surely seems a little bit odd. So, for example, one of the groups that discusses this stuff is a Christian news organisation called Unsealed. At least they call themselves a news organisation. And they describe that what they're actually predicting is not, in fact, the end of the world per se, although it would fit under my definition of Teotihuacan. On their website, they have a very long letter to those left behind after the rapture, when they believe that all the righteous will instantly vanish and go to heaven, explaining that in the next seven years, the Antichrist will appear as a charismatic world leader, sign a peace treaty with Israel, and proceed to lead humanity into eternal damnation until they repent, etc., etc. It's quite interesting, you know, that this website is quite far to the right, and yet they have this idea that the Antichrist will be a, a charismatic, world-changing world leader who will sign a peace treaty with Israel. So, I mean, we have a new charismatic world leader. I mean, like him or not, a lot of people would say he's got some sort of charisma to get to his position of power, and he is pro-Israel. But since he's Donald Trump and he's a Republican, they're not willing to identify him with the Antichrist, even though he probably fits the prophecy better than any other world leader you can point to at the moment. So their website is very cute. They have a rapture index, along with a lot of other websites, that determines how close they think this is to occurring. It's currently set at 9.2. Another rapture index I found has basically been predicting the rapture on and off since 1990. You might think that I'm being unfair. After all, there is another famous doomsday clock, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists' Doomsday Clock, and that is an attempt to measure how likely and how imminent the end of the world might be. And this doomsday clock has always been dramatically poised at a certain number of minutes to midnight, which is always suggestive that the world is about to end. It started at seven minutes to midnight in 1947, as fears about nuclear weapons grew. It spiked to two minutes to midnight in 1953, when the Soviets got the bomb. It relaxed a little over the years of the Cold War, as arms treaties got signed and the stalemate came in. You have to remember that at the start, people didn't necessarily realise that there'd be such a thing as mutually assured destruction. It might have seemed like either side was going to launch an attack on the other at any moment. And who would have thought that the situation in Berlin, where the city was divided by a great wall, would be stable for as long as it was? I mean, that seems like a flashpoint for conflict, if ever there was one. But then Reagan came. And the doomsday clock started freaking out again as his tough rhetoric had both the Soviets and apparently the Bulletin convinced that he wanted to win the Cold War with a nuclear strike. So this was in the 1980s. And in fairness to the doomsday clock, those two very near miss incidents with nuclear weapons—the Petrov incident that you might remember from our episodes on nuclear weapons—he had that heart-stopping moment when he saw all of the nuclear missiles flood across the screen. And that did happen in 1983-4, when communications were icy and the clock was at three minutes to midnight. For such a Cold War-obsessed doomsday clock, it relaxed massively to 17 minutes to midnight with the collapse of the USSR in 1991, and it's steadily crept back up since as new forms of instability—terrorism, global warming, and a lack of nuclear disarmament—have dashed the post-Cold War hope. It's currently set at a rather alarming two and a half minutes to midnight. The worst since the height of the Cold War, so you know they are dramatically predicting the end of the world too to be imminent, and it's only because they're the bulletin of atomic scientists that I'm not having a go at them. Or maybe neither side is in fact making a concrete prediction, but they're both using their own metrics to indicate how likely they think something is going to happen. Unsealed has been predicting the rapture since at least 2013, 
but they've only recently stuck a specific-ish date on it, September 2017 or thereabouts. By the way, I'm recording this with a week to go in September 2017, so... If you don't hear it, maybe the rapture happened, or maybe you'll notice that this website quietly drops their specific prediction, as so often happens. Every time anything happens in the news, including Trump and Brexit and everything else, it somehow becomes evidence for the rapture and linked to vague passages and revelations. They spent eight years saying that Obama's presidency was sending America into decline and that this was a sign of the rapture. And then on the day Trump got elected, the guy is changing his story, saying that actually, many Bible passages say that the rapture will come out of the blue when things are looking perfectly fine, which for this guy means that Trump is in the White House. One of the signs of the imminent rapture is even that people are saying, where's the rapture? Which would be at pretty much any time it's not the rapture. Oh, by the way, you can find literally thousands of rapture predictors who disagree on how and when this is going to happen. So if you're feeling myth that I didn't mention your pet theory, I'm just picking on a particular example. And I don't feel bad about picking on this particular group, because their other incoherent articles show them to be incredibly intolerant of people with different opinions. And I guess that's fine. I mean, you can believe you're right and be intolerant in your own free speech space, but if you're predicting the end of the world and being intolerant of people with different opinions then you do set yourself up to be laughed at when you're wrong. And I'm happy to do that. Again, I would say that if you do believe the rapture will happen, then having a whole bunch of people out there predicting it without good cause is bad for business, surely. And obviously all of them are trying to make money somehow through advertising revenue or through selling books or survivalist courses or whatever else. And of course it should be pointed out, this is not a new problem. It happened in 66 AD. 365 AD, when a bishop announced it. 400 AD, when another bishop declared the Antichrist had already been born. Sextus Julius Africanus predicted the end of the world for 500 AD. He later changed his mind to 800 AD. Equally wrong, but he was smart enough to pick dates after he would be dead, so no one would laugh at him. The year 1000 AD was a big year, obviously, because apocalypse predictors love round numbers and the millennium. A lot of people got very upset about that. I'm not going to list every false prediction, but it's noticeable that the list gets much denser towards the last few centuries, until there's practically a prediction for every year the last few centuries. This probably has less to do with modern people being more inclined to predict the apocalypse, and more to do with the fact that more of what people said was recorded. There's not an awful lot of reason to continually document in the histories, on this day the world was supposed to end but didn't. Thanks a bunch, Father Dougal Maguire. Recording that for all eternity, back when writing was at a premium and there weren't too many people who could do it, doesn't make a lot of sense. Another trend, though, is that a lot of early predictions were for dates after the people involved died, but a lot of the more recent ones, after the Middle Ages, involved wannabe prophets, often citing complicated biblical calculations, who predicted an end-time scenario that fell within their own lifetime. And quite often, they had legions of followers who were convinced that the prophecy would come true, and did as they were commanded by their leaders. In 1524, a group of astrologers predicted that the world would end beginning with a gigantic flood in London and 10,000 Londoners ran up a hill for safety, and presumably to avoid the flood, so that they could die along with everyone else in the main apocalypse event. So when the predicted apocalypse, you know, didn't quite materialise, the astronomers decided that the best course of action was to shift the date forward by 100 years. Sorry everybody, Brian forgot to carry the one. Of course it helps that none of you will be alive to be proved wrong to be a second time. Even the great Renaissance painter, Botticelli, was predicting the rapture and the end of the world. 
He believed he was living in a time alluded to in the Bible called the Tribulation, which is a period of great upheaval and suffering. This has been a very rich area for biblical rapture predictors, because you can see that there are plenty of times in history that people have looked around and said, well, things seem pretty upheavaly and suffering-y. I think we're living through the tribulation right now, including for some people the last few months. A professor of theology at the New York Times put it best when he pointed out that these apocalyptic predictions can actually distract Christians from their quoted mission of redeeming the world. In much the same way, scientists should remember that predicting that climate catastrophe, or a disastrous singularity, or a Malthusian catastrophe are inevitable. Well, this doesn't spur people to action so much as explaining how these things might be prevented. Our message should always first be, this is what you can do to change it, this is what you can do to stop it, as opposed to the doom and gloom motivations alongside those things that often get more press. In a lot of cases, though, People who predict the end is coming do genuinely believe what they're saying, even though time and time again it's been proved wrong. But a lot of the time, people who predict the end of the world have ulterior motives. I've been cruel enough about the doomsayers who haven't yet been proved wrong. Let's look at everyone else. A classic example of a genuine prediction that later became this sort of charlatanism was during the Anabaptist Siege of Munster in 1534. So the Anabaptists were one of the sects that spread out of the initial translations of the Bible. So the Bible was this sacred book for thousands of hundreds of years, and uh, it was in Latin, which meant it was only able to be read by an upper class of clergy and people like that. But then in the 1500s, alongside the invention of the printing press, there was the um, translation of the Bible into languages that were more commonly spoken, such as German. And this basically sparked what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. A great many people read the Bible for the first time, and they came up with alternative interpretations to the one that they'd been taught by the Catholic Church. Some of these were mainstream and have formed modern-day Protestantism, but some were downright apocalyptic. The Anabaptists gathered in Münster in Germany under the leadership of their charismatic leader Jan Matthias. He said that he believed visions from God had told him that the apocalypse was coming soon, and that only the city of Munster, the New Jerusalem, would be spared. The city ended up being besieged by the authorities in Germany, who were a little concerned that it had been taken over by a fringe of extremist radicals. Now, Jan Matthias was clearly an example of a doomsday prophet who genuinely believed what he was talking about. He received another message from God, and he rode out into battle with a few dedicated followers against the besieging forces. He believed that he was the reincarnation of a biblical figure, and that he'd win a miraculous victory. But in the end of the day, he and his 12 followers were not destined to conquer the besieging army of hundreds of soldiers. It didn't work out. He was killed and dismembered. They stuck his head on a pike and nailed his unmentionables to the door of the city. And then, at this point, there was understandably considerable panic amongst the people of Munster, who were maybe slightly less convinced that this whole Anabaptist thing was a good idea. After all, suddenly it might not look like the apocalypse was going to arrive for the whole world, just for them. And suddenly it looked like God wasn't really on the side of Jan Matthias either. It was at this point that Jan van Leiden, another Anabaptist leader, stepped up to the plate and took up the role of apocalyptic prophet. And while he may have believed in some of the prophecies of Matthias, he wasn't above using the apocalyptic predictions and the legion of followers to his own advantage. Like that time he insisted that, in order to greet him, God needed a certain amount of finery and gold, 
so everyone should turn over their good clothing and jewellery to the new king of Munster. All that time he was caught in bed with a serving girl, and immediately declared that God wanted everyone to be polygamous and take many wives. You know, like in the Old Testament, right? When the city ran out of food, Van Leiden reportedly told people that the cobblestones would be turned into bread for them. All the while, his personal charisma, the promise that the end was soon nigh, and that none of the things that seem to be rather important right now, you know, the besieging army starving to death, were going to end up being remotely important. That's the thing about the end of the world. It's a pretty good trump card if you want to persuade people to do things that they might otherwise be a little bit reluctant about. And so it proved for Jan van Leiden, who lived it up like a king for a few months during the Siege of Munster. The end did come for him, of course. Eventually, the Anabaptists were betrayed, the city was recaptured, and he personally died a rather awful death. You can look it up if you're interested. The details are rather gruesome. So, you know, that was one particular failed prediction that had some pretty disastrous consequences for a lot of the people involved. Many of them gave up their possessions and jobs to travel to Munster, the Anabaptist paradise, and many of them lost their lives in the ensuing siege and recapture of the city. Jan van Leiden may have enjoyed his time as king of Munster, wearing lots of jewellery and taking lots of wives, but it came at a terrible cost. But it's worth remembering that even some of the more mainstream figures of the Protestant Reformation shared this conviction that the end of the world was coming soon. Martin Luther, for example, he of the famous 14 Theses. A more modern version of a very similar story involves Roland Wineland. He founded a splinter sect called the Church of God, preparing for the coming of the Kingdom of God. This happened in 2000. In 2008, he hopped on the 2012 bandwagon for the end of the world that you probably all remember, and set May the 27th, 2012, as the date for his apocalypse. His motivations might be a little clearer when you learn that he was eventually imprisoned for tax fraud, and was found to have diverted an awful lot of church funds into offshore bank accounts, despite claiming that the money was just resting in a Swiss bank account. He ended up with a hefty fine of a quarter of a million dollars and four years in prison. When the May 27th prophecy failed, at first Roland seemed to tell his followers to move on, but then later he changed his mind and said that the prophecy had in fact come true, but that the end of the world would take a year to unfold. So this is really similar to some things that happened during the Siege of Munster and in plenty of other apocalyptic events. During the Siege of Munster, Jan van Leiden had predicted a particular date, and he said that on this date, everyone in the city would be saved. Now, he sort of led them to believe that this was a physical rapture in the sense of the uh, Revelations-type predictions, so that their bodies would be physically removed from the city, which was under siege and that they would be freed from their predicament. The day came, and obviously nothing happened. But Jan van Leiden took it in his stride. He came out and said that they had in fact been saved, their souls had been saved, and they were now all guaranteed to go to heaven, and it was simply the fact that they weren't holy or devout enough that meant they hadn't realised the glorious thing that had happened. It's interesting this, I feel that you get into the psychology of cult belief and cult behaviour here a little bit. Because at this point, every individual listening to that speech from Jan van Leiden, or listening to that speech from Roland Wineland, who said that, in fact, the end of the world has happened, and it will just take another year to unfold. They have a choice, don't they? They can either think, yes, I've been duped, I've been had, this is all obvious, this person is lying to me. 
in which case they have to admit their own foolishness, the embarrassment, the fact that in the case of Munster, they've given up their lives because they knew that they'd be killed by the besieging forces. And in the case of Roland Wineland, they'd been conned out of vast amounts of money by this man. Either they admit that, or they continue believing in the world that's easier for them to believe in. And I don't think we should ever, even when talking about these people, underestimate our own tendency to want to believe in the world that's easiest to believe in. We do it all the time. You're probably doing it now. So, Roland had said that May the 27th, 2012, would be the end of the world. Then he said that actually the end of the world was starting and it would just take another year to happen. A week or so before May the 27th, 2013, his second favoured date, Roland once more chickened out and said that the end of the world was delayed for another few years. Amazingly, he's currently flogging a book that says 2019. I won't be holding my breath in 2019. Cotton Mather is another interesting case of someone whose initial failed prediction didn't stop them from trying it again. A Puritan preacher from the 17th century, he has a mixed record when it comes to being on the right side of the facts. He vigorously defended the Salem witch trials, in which innocent people were killed for reasons of pure superstition. But he was also one of the leading proponents in the American colonies for smallpox inoculation and vaccination amidst fears at the time that all that vaccination did was to spread the disease. You'll remember from our episode on pandemics that the widespread vaccination effort has effectively wiped out smallpox, although some governments do insist on holding small stockpiles of the virus. But he did have three goes at predicting the end of the world, trying again with different years twice to no avail. Perhaps one of the stranger versions of this kind of prediction involved an English domestic servant, Joanna Southcott, in the late 1700s, she became convinced that she was a prophet with a hotline to God. What's amazing about some of these stories is just how charismatic individuals have been shown to be on so many occasions. I know for a fact that if I started claiming that I knew the apocalypse was coming, no one would listen, and everyone would laugh. But Joanna Southcott, from her humble position as a domestic servant, she managed to publish her prophecies and convince tens and thousands of people to follow her. Perhaps part of the motivation for her predictions was revealed in the fact that she sold seals which would guarantee you as a position as one of the 144,000 whose souls would be liberated from the earth. Initially, Revelations clearly states, quote, No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, for it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. End quote. No word on whether the people who had paid 12 shillings apiece for these seals that Southcott was selling had actually read this bit of the Bible or not, but it pretty clearly states that they had to be virgins, and I'm betting not all of them were, so awkward. Joanna Southcott, at the age of 64, predicted that she was pregnant with the new Messiah, and that in October 1814 she would give birth to the new Messiah, Shiloh, triggering the apocalypse. Thousands of people showed up to greet the new prophet, but it was announced that he had been immediately taken up into heaven upon being born. So what a lot of people report is that this is in fact an example of a phantom pregnancy. Southcott psychosomatically had several of the symptoms of pregnancy and believed herself to be pregnant. Phantom pregnancy is weird. You can get swellings that represent the sort of swelling of the belly in pregnancy and uh, morning sickness and things like this. People experience this and yet, you know, it's all completely psychosomatic in their mind. But phantom or not, there was no messiah, and she died a few months later. 
But what's really amazing about Joanna Southcott is you know that, in spite of the fact that her end-of-the-world prediction completely failed to materialise, and the idea that she at 64 was pregnant with the Messiah is a little odd, a lot of people are still interested in her predictions, and they take them seriously. She left behind a sealed box of prophecies that should only be opened in a time of national turmoil, and only then by all of the assembled bishops of the Church of England. Since then, the fate of the box has been disputed by many. It's amazing, isn't it, that people are still interested in this box of prophecies from someone who was proved so dastardly wrong in their lifetime. So, a publicist claimed to have opened the box in 1927, and found nothing of interest. Some people maintain that this was the true box, while many of the surviving groups of Southcottians claim that they are taking care of the box and are waiting the correct moment. Other groups believe that someone else is in possession of the box, and one organisation used to take out advertising space in the Daily Mail, demanding that the box be opened, thus allowing us to prepare for the world to come in the prophecies. One group believes that the Messiah has been reincarnated into the body of Prince William. Another group of them maintains a table with just 24 chairs in place, just on the off chance that all of the bishops of the Church of England decide to rock up and open the box. Some people say that the British Museum has the real box, and that they opened it and found little of interest inside. You can almost find as many stories about the box as there are splintered groups of South Cottians, and since there's no way of verifying the authenticity of anyone's claims, we'll probably never know for certain. You know, it's interesting, I remember reading an article about how to write a good story, and they said that the one cheap but often very effective technique you can use in story writing is to introduce a box, a box that no one knows what's inside, and create this sort of suspense and mystery about what's inside the box. Obviously this is meant to be as an analogy, so an example might be a letter that no one's read and that the contents of which are only revealed towards the end, or a person whose identity is a secret and needs to be found out later on. And you can think of all kinds of movies and films and books and TV shows that have exploited this. But in the case of Joanna Southcott, it was a literal box. An actual box, which no one knows what it's inside. So... I suppose this really explains the question why anyone was that interested in what Joanna Southcott had to say when she was so discredited in her own life. She was obviously a very good storyteller. Of course, end-of-the-world predictions aren't just a Christian phenomenon. Far from it. People don't just predict from the Bible either. Charles Manson, who was head of the grisly murder cult the Manson family, he made his apocalyptic predictions based on a bizarre interpretation of the Beatles' White Album. Why he thought that John, Paul, George and Ringo had the secrets of the universe, I have no idea, but he was criminally insane. There are plenty of superstitious societies that have fixed a specific date for the apocalypse, and some degree or other of mass panic has followed. The ancient Romans, for example, believed that Romulus, the mythical founder of the city, had been told that his civilization would last for only another 120 years, leading to widespread concern when the city reached its 120th anniversary. Rome went on to stand, and indeed eventually dominate the Mediterranean world, for centuries to come. Has anyone listening to this ever seen Plan 9 from Outer Space? It's widely considered to be one of the worst films of all time. Terrible editing, awful acting, and a diabolically rubbish script for sure. This is true of plenty of films, like for example the Transformers movies. But there are also some little facts about Plan 9 that just catapulted over the edge. Like the fact that the star, Bela Lugosi, died halfway through shooting and was replaced for the rest of the flick by the director's wife's chiropractor, who tried to conceal the fact that he 
you know, wasn't Bella Lugosi, by wearing a big cloak over his head. It's about as effective as you're imagining. You really know you're in for a treat, though, when the narrator shows up at the start of the movie. I can't do the sheer, weird desperation of it any justice at all, so I advise you to look up the video if you haven't seen it. But here's the script and my best impression of Criswell, the narrator of the Plan 9 from Outer Space movie. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based on only the secret testimonies of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places, my friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space? So I've loved this film for a really long time, but I had no idea that the narrator and Criswell predicts were both a real phenomena outside the, excuse me, batshit insane world of this movie. The man involved, who went by the stage name The Amazing Criswell, built his career on being a psychic and making often very inaccurate predictions. He wrote a book called Criswell Predicts, in which some of the predictions are pretty wild. His second book was reviewed by the fan website criswellpredicts.com as, quote, a combination of fashion tips, financial forecasts, amazing labour-saving devices, spicy gossip, and gloomy tales of impending social collapse. So a lot of them are your standard futurist fare, uh, where you make false extrapolations. So, for example, there's a story about how the first aeroplane was a biplane with two wings, and then soon an aeroplane was invented with more wings. And then futurists started predicting that there would eventually be aeroplanes with dozens of wings, because obviously the trend was more wings, and if you extrapolate that, you'd end up with modern aeroplanes with hundreds of wings. He was writing around the time that the Stonewall riots happened, and that's probably what inspired him to predict homosexual cities. So some of his predictions are reasonable guesses, such as the idea that Fidel Castro would be assassinated. Predicting the exact date for that to happen, though, borders on lunacy. Other predictions are slightly more outlandish, and yes, I'm going to crack out the impression again. Quote, Can our whirling, turling, churling Earth last out the night? Our geologists tell us that the danger to Mother Earth lies not in the vast, outcharted regions of underspace, but from inner Earth. Here is what will more than likely happen, according to the geologists. Small tidal waves will play havoc for no reason at all, the surface of the earth will bulge ever so slightly, and highways will slightly buckle. Foundations will tip, and floors will slant. When you pour a cup of coffee or a glass of water, the rim will not level. Telephone coin boxes and vending machines will refuse to work. Delicate instruments will go haywire. Elevators will go out of whack. Jukeboxes will be mute. Radio and TV will fail. All electric power, gas, and water service will cease. 
and then will come the time when garbage cans roll across the street for no apparent reason. Then and only then will you realise the advanced corrosion spelling the end of our Earth. The seas will quickly fill up with a gooey mass of inner Earth rubble. Our streets and city lots, farms and deserts will bubble up like a festered oil, marking the complete collapse. Has this happened before? More than likely. And it will again happen in your incredible future. End quote. If there are any geologists listening, I'm so sorry. Criswell predicted that in 1980, Denver, Colorado would be hit by a giant beam of energy that came from outer space and turned everything into rubber. There is no known astronomical phenomenon that would beam radiation so effectively onto a single city, and certainly nothing that would turn lumber, concrete, bricks and mortar into jelly. Criswell further predicted that London would be hit by a meteorite killing everyone in the city in 1988. I typed this in London Euston, and while there are areas that could do with a bit of a tidy, there's not much sign of a devastating meteor strike. He predicted that a nuclear strike would be mostly deflected by a missile shield, except for, quote, a few missiles that rain down on the helpless state of Vermont. Sorry, Vermont. And finally, he predicted that the end of the world would take place in August 1999. He said, quote, that day, every point on the earth will be covered by a black rainbow. Not just any black rainbow, mind you, but a jet black rainbow, an ebony rainbow. A black rainbow which will signify the coming suffocation of our world. This black rainbow will seemingly bring about, through some mysterious force beyond our comprehension, a lack of oxygen. It will draw the oxygen from our atmosphere, as a huge snake encircling the world, and feeding upon the oxygen which we need to exist. Hour after hour, it will grow worse, and we will grow weaker. It is through this that we will be so weakened that when the final end arrives, we will go silently. We will go gasping for breath, and then there will be only silence on the earth. There's something poetic about just how ridiculous Criswell's predictions are. Alongside the ridiculously dramatic destruction of several cities, this is quite a bizarre sci-fi fantasy idea for the end of the universe that has no basis in anything anyone has ever said, at any point. Predicting that the world will end due to the rapture, or by nuclear war, is one thing. These are at least feasible apocalypses that people have discussed for a long time that have a proximate cause that you can point to, even if you might not believe that humans would use nuclear weapons or that God is coming back. But it takes a special kind of creativity to predict something this ridiculous, it seems pretty clear to me that Criswell had little belief in anything he was saying, and just liked to put on a dramatic show. Please watch some video of him and you'll see what I mean. When you see his dialogue in Plan 9 in Outer Space, you can clearly see that he's reading it from an autocue. I thought that that was a one-off, but you can hear some radio shows where there are some bizarre pauses where he's clearly reading his predictions from pages that he's turning in real time. And the entertainer Johnny Carson said of Criswell, you know, he's 80% right 20% of the time. And yet, he did genuinely, apparently predict the assassination of JFK, saying that he would not run for re-election in 1964 because something would happen to him in November 1963. Which initially seems very eerie, until you realise just how much of what he said was astonishingly, hilariously wrong, and that most of his predictions contradict each other in astounding ways. One of the predictions of his that I quite like is... Women will earn most of the money and spend 93 cents out of every dollar, and what are we poor men to do? 
I for one welcome it, because we men have made such a mess of things that naturally the women must come to our rescue and do better. Here's hoping. I will leave this section with Criswell's own words. For years, I have related the unbelievable and the unexplained and showed him to be more than fact. It certainly is much, much more than fact. You've just listened to the first half of my bonus fail predictions episode. Veterans of the show will anticipate what's coming next. The second half will be available as a purchase for those of you who want to hear a little more rambling about the possible ends of the world. You can make a purchase by subscribing to our show on Patreon, where you'll get your own special RSS feed with the bonus episodes, for a donation of $2 per episode. Alternatively, if you donate via the PayPal link on Twitter, at PhysicsPod, and let me know your email, I will send you a link where you can download the bonus show. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Which, if you have $2 to spare to help us cover our hosting costs, could be almost immediately. Until then, stay safe.